Hi, I'm Mark Scott, Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education, and welcome to Every Student, the podcast where I get to introduce you to some of our great leaders in education. And I'm speaking today on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I want to pay my respect to traditional owners of the land on which we meet and pay my respect to elders past and present, wherever you're listening to this podcast. And today I'm with Professor Larissa Barrent, a highly respected legal academic and director of Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research at the University of Technology, Sydney, which is also chair of the Kathy Freeman Foundation, a trustee of the Australian Museum and a board member of the Sydney Festival. And Larissa has a deep interest in Indigenous education and chaired the 2011 Federal Government Review of Higher Education Access and Outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. She's a Camilleroy woman and very proudly for us, a graduate of New South Wales Public Education. Welcome, Larissa. Lovely to be with you, Mark. Well, we want to talk today about the work that you're doing and also talk about trying to create the best possible teaching and learning outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students at our schools. As I mentioned in the introduction, your education began in New South Wales Public Education and it's taken you to a group of eight universities in Australia and to being the first Aboriginal Harvard Law graduate. What was your experience of public education and public schooling as a young Indigenous student? Well, um, as you mentioned, I'm um, a product of the public school system. I went to school in Cooma where I was born and then moved with my family to Norfolk Island for a couple of years and then to the Shire. So I finished my primary school at Gymea Bay and Sutherland Public and then went to Kirrawee High School. And I felt like, you know, obviously going to um, a group of eight law school and then on to an elite uh, Ivy League university like Harvard, um, that actually my public education had given me everything that I needed to succeed. I think within that system, I had to have a lot of initiative and that was always encouraged, Um, but I felt like I could really hold my own. So I've got a lot of affection for my uh, public education and particularly for Kirrawee High School and I still very proudly keep a connection with it. Um, I sponsor a couple of prizes, one for social justice and one for Indigenous students and of course continue to do work to support the Public Education Foundation. And I would say that, you know, I had experiences of racism in the playground and the classroom, not often by teachers, but often by students. And um, I guess my father was a very early advocate for more Indigenous education in the classroom. Um, He would come to school every parent-teacher night. I think by the time I was in high school, particularly the history teachers probably drew straws as to who was going to deal with him. And not that they were unsympathetic to what he wanted, but it wasn't part of the curriculum and he really advocated for that. Um, And, you know, of course it was mortifying at the time that everyone would run and hide when he was coming near. But, you know, I look back now and I, I, I sort of see that as a moment of great pride he, you know, he was friends with the Indigenous people who started the AECG, but he'd kind of started his own campaign without waiting for them. Yeah, and, and did you feel um, that, you know, an important part of your 
your heritage and your connection to country just wasn't discussed or wasn't engaged with at school? Was that almost, did that almost have to be a separate part of your life? It was probably even more deeper than that. Um, and certainly there was no engagement with my culture at all. Mm. When I go back to Kirawee High School now, often for things like NAIDOC Day, um, there's, there's a large Indigenous presence. We've had a couple of Indigenous school captains now. You know, it was so different in terms of any acknowledgement of, uh, of my culture and any, any sense that that culture was a positive thing and something that people should embrace. But what I probably felt most acutely was I, I came to know by the time I was in high school um, much more deeply the circumstances of my own family history and particularly my grandmother's removal and my father growing up in an orphanage. And I got really frustrated that the kids that would tease me in the school and had really negative attitudes about Aboriginal people didn't know any of that history because it wasn't taught. And I did even think at the time as a child, as a teen, you know, in my early teens, that if they understood that history more, they'd understand why, you know, I felt the way I felt about things. You know, I, I was already very political, grew up in the Shire, but we had strong connections through my dad with the Redfern community. So I'd spend a lot of Saturdays going and marching or going and, you know, to, to following dad to meetings there and was really exposed to hearing people like, you know, Gary Foley and Bobby Sykes. It was just sort of part of my education too. And so I knew there was a whole other world that the students that I was at school with just weren't exposed to. And I did feel like there was real work to be done in telling that story. Um, we, we're, we're trying to do a lot of work to embed Aboriginal perspectives across the curriculum. How important do you see that connection to culture and language as being a driver of helping Aboriginal students feel engaged with learning and to have a successful journey through school? It's a really good question because there's obviously a lot of research that shows that the more Indigenous students are engaged with the curriculum and the better the culture of the school is at accommodating their cultural needs, the the better their education outcomes and particularly the better their school attendance is. And I think a lot of schools that have, have prioritised Indigenous learning have, have tried to do that through things like in, the, in poorer socioeconomic areas, things like breakfast and lunch programs are really successful. But having elders in residence, Indigenous people on the teaching staff, really engaging with the local community and having a good relationship are the kinds of things that transform the school. Not, and, and I think it's important, not just for Indigenous students and their parents and, and bearing in mind that their parents had a very different education, probably a lot more like mine, where there was no acknowledgement of Indigenous people or if there was any mention, it was in a demeaning way. Um, a way that caused embarrassment. So it's a way of building relationships with them as well. But I think importantly, what we see too is where schools engage in that diverse cultural engagement, it's actually better for the school as a whole and students as a whole. So I certainly think there's really strong evidence about how that level of curriculum engagement and cultural engagement gives us the better outcomes that we're looking in term for in terms of the close the gap agenda and um, 
in increased participation rates, increased success rates, getting that pipeline of kids finishing the HSC and going on to uh, further education, you know, all of those things. But I do think there's an importance as well, because I think overall it improves the quality of the community of the school in general. Well, kids, one of the most uh, moving things I've experienced in my time as secretary is going to a North Coast uh, school and seeing all the kids learning the local Aboriginal language. Uh, and there's no French, there's no German. That was the language that everyone was learning. And great having the elders in at the school, great having that engagement with the community. And I, I think what you're saying is no trade-off, everyone benefits. I mean, I think that's, that's a point that someone would make. I mean, looking at, looking at your stellar career, I mean, you achieved all you achieved without this, right? You, you were in a, you know, um, and, and you have a, achieved recognition at the highest possible levels. But um, you think it would, it benefits all students if they don't have to go down that pathway and that there's no, in a sense, academic trade-off for students by tailoring these perspectives into the curriculum and driving engagement in this way. No, not at all. I think it's, I think it enriches all students. I think um, it engages um, all students with the history of this country and helps them to understand a little bit more about the importance of the cultures of this country. And, you know, I, I think the, the uh, assumption that somehow this is a trade-off is, is really misguided. It, first of all, undermines the importance of those stories in terms of understanding our own history and really building kids who have a really strong sense of what kind of country we should be. You know, I, you know we like to think that all our kids will be, be leaders in some way and they should have a really strong view about that. And I think the other way curriculums are being really enriched, particularly in the STEM areas now, is with a deeper embrace of Indigenous knowledges. And particularly as the issue of climate becomes one of increasing importance for all of us, but one that our young people are incredibly invested in. The knowledges that are contained in Indigenous cultures about sustainability, um, about sharing resources, sharing country, looking after country, uh, with things like fire technology, all of those things that are now becoming important debates on a policy level, I think are enriching for our students. Um, let's talk about the issues of unconscious bias and the deficit model that can exist in schools now. I mean, how um, important is it? I mean, we have research that talks about high expectations as being an absolute, you know, fundamental driver of uh, high quality teaching and learning outcomes. Um, how, how does unconscious bias and the deficit model impact Aboriginal students in schools, do you think? Look, I think one area where it still has a really big impact is in expectations around the ability of Indigenous students. And I say that because this still came up as a big issue when I did the higher education review, um, which was, you know, an audit across the country of some of these issues, particularly the pipeline. And one of the challenges for the higher education sector is that there, um, you know, the number of Indigenous students coming through the pipeline for them to then bring into university weren't in the numbers that would help them achieve their own targets. And so they raised a lot of questions about that. And, and 
particularly in speaking to students within the higher education sector, almost all of them would have had an experience where they were given an alternative pathway because they were Indigenous. And it was quite shocking. So I would speak to students who were doing science, working in the sciences, and had been told as a student that because they were bright, they should try and get a job at Kmart. Mm. And I just think it's still a really big part of um, the, um, the challenge around um, building um, excellence in, in Indigenous students is just that, you know, people really pick up on that. I had my own negative experience with that at Kirrawee High School, even though for the most part, my teachers were exceptional and it was my English teachers and history teachers and one English teacher in particular that put me on the pathway to university when I'd never thought of it myself. So in a way, it's maybe a reverse example of the how important the aspiration part is. As a first in, in family, it never occurred to me to go to university. And that ambition came completely from my teachers. But I did economics for my HSC in year 11. And one of the teachers moved me out of that into home economics because I was Indigenous. She left the school when I was in year 12. So I dropped home economics because I had no interest in it at all and just didn't have the confidence to be able to challenge her, especially when her language was all about her doing me a favour. And I was so embarrassed about it, I didn't tell my parents, who both would have been horrified about it. Um, so I just sort of feel like there's still, you know, that, that always made me realise from a very personal experience how, you know, how that could have been a very different pathway for me if I hadn't have had those exceptional teachers there. So for me, from a personal level, and as you say, Mark, there is a lot of evidence that speaks to the importance of, of that modelling around um, expecting ex excellence and, and expecting high results from Indigenous students um, as real models for success. So, so what do we need to be doing and what do we need to be focused on? I mean, the way you, you work at UTS, you're strongly engage with students who come out of the public education system. But if, as, as we take on, you know, our commitment and responsibility to be improving the learning outcomes for Aboriginal students, and as a result of that, the life opportunities for young Aboriginal students, where should our focus and attention be? I think, I think there's a couple of ways we should focus. The, the first is, of course, that, that project around engagement with the curriculum. Um, and also the engagement with local Aboriginal communities and really building those relationships between the um, Aboriginal community that's within the school community and the Aboriginal community that is around where the school is. I think they're really strong ways to, to build the confidence around building that content um, and, and ensuring a great culture within the school. I think the other area where there does need to be some real investment as part of this is actually in teacher education. It's been my experience that actually one of the challenges around inclusion in the curriculum is not because teachers don't think it's an important area. Most of them do, but they are really aware because they feel it's so important about the deficiencies in their own education. And, you know, I think investment in tools that assist teachers to more confidently teach into the curriculum uh, 
that's also really useful. Um, in, in a way, um, one of the reasons why I've really been committed to the Indigenous Australia for Dummies um, book uh, that I write is, is because I feel like those kind of resources where people who just want to learn more don't want to feel like they're in an uncomfortable position of asking questions that they fear might be offensive or, or clumsy can go and find resources that are really easily accessible. And I think the more that we can do through our board of studies, the more we can do through universities with our teacher education, I think that's also a really good um, investment. And particularly, as we've just mentioned, Mark, in relation to expectations around Indigenous students. Um, you know, and, and when I was doing the higher ed review, I used to get really frustrated with universities who'd say, well, you know, we don't get more students because there's the pipeline isn't there. And I used to say to them, but what are you doing about teacher education? Because that's a place where you can immediately be helping with that pipeline. But you have to, it strikes me, you know, what we all have to do if it's not part of our life experiences, do the work. And there's so much great material out now. Mm. You know? Bruce Pascoe, Stan Grant, the material that you've worked, uh, you've written and led, um, just, just, and I, the array of fiction that I think gives insight into Aboriginal culture, Aboriginal history is just kind of wonderful now. But, but, and, and I think for many people who grew up as I grew up without that experience, um, there are so many great opportunities to engage, which just, I think, provide you with more insight. Um, and I think gives you more confidence in engaging in the conversation, uh, which is where we need to, we clearly need to get to. On the high expectations, I mean, I'm grateful to um, the AECG, Cindy Berwick and others, who I think pushed us hard on this target. And it goes exactly to the issue that um, we were talking about. You know, 50% a 50 increase in Aboriginal students completing the HSC while maintaining their cultural identity, it would have been easy for us to say, well, um, you know, if they get a job or they're in a skills program or whatever, that they somehow commitment to somehow being involved in education, training or work, that would be fine. But the reality is that um, a very significant of our students go through now to complete the HSC. Why should we have any different expectations uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander? students on that um, and 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 so they made us ambitious in this target but it will be a challenging target uh, for us um, what do you think the keys are for us to work most effectively with these students to put them on a successful pathway through the hsc and into higher education or training or work i think one of the things that chris sarah's groundbreaking work uh, showed was that success for Indigenous students often comes from a mix of that high expectation around uh, academic achievement, which, as you say, is given the um, performance of Indigenous students now, no reason to, for people to ever doubt that. But there is also a link between self-confidence and self-esteem and uh, links to, and, and that that links very clearly to culture. And I think that's been really important in the past because it does help students who, on the one hand, have a lot of ability, but then can, because, you know, they're young, still finding their way in the world, still working on their identity and their, their sense of who they are and their confidence. 
are really susceptible to negative stereotyping, negative comments and racism. And so there is, I think, a real importance in terms of achieving those targets that continues to understand that with, with any child and Indigenous children in particular, there is a mix of having to uh, focus on academic excellence and, and judge that in a way that isn't, isn't culturally skewed and then also focusing on self-esteem and confidence. And when I look back at my own success, I sort of feel like, although I did have really supportive teachers, that connection that I had through my father with the Redfern community, people like Uncle Max Harrison, um, with Burnham Burnham, all of these people who were friends of my father's, um, and still some of them quite big figures in the Shire, um, you know, they, they gave me a sense of that confidence outside of the schoolyard, which helped me to navigate that within it. And I think the schools just have to do more in that space, which is why I think that engagement with the local community and the Indigenous families that are within the school community that are, you know, really add to the life of the school. We can all think of those examples, you know, of really you know, great um, community leaders who've come in and really made a commitment in our public education system. It's probably a good moment to, to just remember the work of people like Arnie Fay, who've really, you know, supported a whole generation of, of Indigenous students through the system. Um, on parents generally, I mean, I think what research would suggest is that high expectation for students um, and a strong supportive infrastructure at home, you know, is, is a key to success and that schools work in partnership with parents. I mean, you tell the story of your father um, strongly engaging with, with your teachers when you were at school, but it would probably be fair to say that, that for many um, parents of Aboriginal students, school may not have been a happy or supportive place for them. They certainly have not gone on to, in a sense, your academic career. So your experience is somewhat atypical. What do we need to do to, to help our parents be more comfortable in a school setting and to feel more confident about being able to be supportive of their student learning, their, their children's learning, and more supportive in a sense of setting high expectations for what their kids could possibly do? I think that's a really good question. And, and you know, my father's experience with education, you know, was, was awful. He would often talk about how whenever Indigenous people were mentioned in the classroom, it was with a sense that they were um, in, inferior or, you know, he talked about how they, uh, he was in class and, and the teacher would talk about how Aboriginal people stopped the progress of Australia. And he just felt a real shame around it. I think it was really important for him that the education experiences of his children were different. And I think a lot of parents feel that way. Um, so I think the question isn't the commitment, it is that it actually, as you touched on, it's that thing about how does the school environment make them feel welcome? And I think acknowledging that history, that this is very recent history, that that the school system treated Indigenous people like they had a real vacuum around Indigenous perspectives, history um, and knowledges um, is, is an important start and means schools have to be proactive about building those relationships, not waiting for the one exceptional atypical parent who has the, um, the time 
and the um, and the um, motivation to take that on. Um, but you know, I think there needs to be some some thinking about that proactive strategy and providing spaces where those parents are invited into the schools at times that are convenient for them as well. Um, and helping them feel like there is a conversation the school wants to have with them about how to do things better and differently and celebrating the achievements of their children and the local Indigenous culture are also ways where you walk into a school and you can fundamentally see it's different. I, I feel that about Kirui for all the affection I have for it. When I walk into the school now and I'm greeted by a mural of Indigenous um, artwork, I, I almost get teary because to me it's such a symbol of how much has changed in this school that I really care about and how much um, um, improved the understanding is about the issues that I struggled with. So I think those very visible signs um, can't be diminished as well. All schools have the apology, it was, you know, as, as you know, some schools put it in a higher um, place of prominence than others. But those sorts of symbols, the flag, etc., can really be quick symbols to people walking in that, that the schools are trying to do better, that the system's trying to do better, and that there is a place for them now when there might not have been in the past. And, and finally, you know, if, if this um, work, this priority that we're working on to increase the percentage of um, Aboriginal students completing the HSC, um, is successful, then hopefully more Aboriginal students uh, come your way at UTS and a number of other universities as well and follow in your footsteps in many ways. From the work you've done at UTS, what, what are the important things you focus on for a successful transition for an Aboriginal student from the school system and the HSC to being successful at university and then going on and, and flourishing in careers after that. What's the work that you're doing there? It's an interesting question because I think it's slightly different for students coming from the public system than the private. Mm. Um, in some ways, and I, I felt this benefit myself when I was going into law school and being one of the few that was from a public school, that the self-discipline and initiative that I needed to flourish within that system in a positive way um, and, and were valued in that system actually were really useful at university where there's much less structure. Nobody cares if you come to class, there's no additional infrastructure around you. So if you don't have the motivation yourself to succeed, you're not going to. And that transition, I think, uh, was easier for me. There are other things I struggled with, that being first in family, still that feeling of do I belong here when other kids clearly assumed their place there and it felt very natural. So not everything was smooth in that way. But for me, I felt that there were things within the school, the public school system that equipped me really well. So in some ways, one of our challenges when students have come through um, a schooling system, uh, particularly say if they're boarding and a lot of things are done for them, that there's actually a bit of a transition. I think perhaps we need to be doing a bit more work in that, that area. Um, but the other things that we, we feel are important is um, the focus on academic excellence uh, continuing. We have work to do within the sector where there is still a bias when Indigenous students walk into the class that there's an assumption that they're there on a special entry program 
and that is less and less the case. Most students are there now because of their ATARs. So they're often being judged as a special needs case by students who got um, lesser marks than they did though. You know, marks obviously is only one measure. I, I accept that, but you, I think you can get the point. Um, so we feel like um, within institutions like Jambana that, um, that are designed particularly to support Indigenous students, we need to be uh, offering um, support around achievement of academic excellence and coming from a strengths-based model there. And then of course, we feel like one of the most important things that we need to be doing is also providing that cultural strength as well. So we have an elder in residence, we do that peer work where there's a cohort of Indigenous students, all of that kind of cultural support. But I think the other strategy that I just wanna flag that's equally important is that once upon a time, I think universities saw their responsibilities to Indigenous students as taking place within the, the institutes like Jambana. We were the place that would do the tutoring programs and the cultural work. And I think we still see that as really important work that we do, particularly that cohort and cultural work. But it is now important because we have our own expectations about Indigenous inclusion in the curriculum. And at UTS, how we've how we've driven that is by requiring all the faculties, every faculty has to have senior Indigenous academic staff. So mm. we have 11 Indigenous professors across UTS mm. and only half of them sit within the Jambana research, the rest are across the faculties. So that is also something that we need to continue is especially when students now are coming through school and have had engagement with Indigenous stories, history, knowledges, perspectives, at the university level, we need to be continuing that. That's been very easy in some places, particularly say in law or the other parts of the social sciences and humanities. It's been a harder push in places like engineering and science, but I think we've seen a huge shift, particularly with the cultural impact of Dark Emu and Bruce Pascoe's work, that there's a broader understanding of what indigenous knowledges mean. And so that project is important for us too, in terms of ensuring that the um, universities continue to provide that space within the curriculum for Indigenous stories. And also we see it as a way of, of producing well-rounded graduates. Every person who graduates from our university should have some competence in their discipline, in their discipline, whether they're an architect, a nurse, um, an engineer, um, in how they deal with and understand Indigenous issues around them. Well, Larissa, thanks for your time and your insight today. I mean, it's a fabulous story from Kirawee High School to Harvard Law School to now being one of our great public intellectuals. And if you're just intrigued by what Larissa has had to say today, you can hear her regularly on ABC Radio, uh, lots of broadcasting uh, that she's doing, but also a distinguished writer and novelist, all available out there for you to understand more of Larissa and her insights and expertise. Uh, in this in vital area of Australian life. Larissa, thanks for joining us today on the Every Student Podcast. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of Every Student. Never miss an episode by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice or by heading to our website at education.nsw.gov.au slash every hyphen student 
podcast. Or if you know someone who is a remarkable innovative educator that we could all learn from, you can get in touch with us via Twitter at New South Wales Education, on Facebook, or email everystudentpodcast at det.nsw.edu.au. Thanks again, and I'll catch you next time.